Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, and I thank you so much for joining us for today's class in language. Not so much English, but language 101. Maybe it's 102. Could be 2.0. I don't know. We'll find out from our guest in a moment. You know, we come your way Sundays at 7 a.m. You know, as a matter of fact, I want my guest to be listening because I want to make sure that everything I say from this point forward is, shall we say, grammatically correct. So here we go. Mondays, it's uh, Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Monday mornings at 1 a.m. Streaming live at richarddugan.com, period. We also, have <laughs> we also have podcasts at SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and many other locations. And by the way, I learned from my sister through her proof, proofreading of my book that you can have either the word and between a list of things or a comma or both, believe it or not. And I did not know that, so I learned a lot. Uh, we talked about that on our last program. Also want to remind you that we'll be giving you our uh, uh, some location where uh, you can go to to continue your uh, um, education as well as your transformational process in speaking the language, writing the language correctly. It's important because it's the only way that we're going to get our message across. And our message on this program is new paradigms for a new world, giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. We also uh, encourage you, if you uh, resonate with what we're doing on this program throughout the weeks, months, and years that we've been doing this, this program, Tell Me Your Story, since September 7th of 2007. Now that's an auspicious set of numbers, isn't it? Uh, you'd like to support us financially, we would greatly appreciate it. We have PayPal and Patreon accounts for your security as well as ours. And also, we want you to participate in the decade, 2020s, the decade of perfect vision. We want you to spend time going within. We want you to spend time getting to know yourself. I know that sounds kind of strange, but you need to do it. You need to spend that time going within and uh, being with yourself. I realize that that can be a little scary sometimes, but it's going to be worth it. Also, finding that still, quiet, calm place where you can relax, rejuvenate, and just calm down. We all need to do that. We all need to calm down. You, you, you do a world of good for your blood pressure. I know this for a fact. If you just learn to calm down. Also, want you to um, stay tuned and uh, learn something on this program. We, we, we encourage you to do that in every program. And uh, this program is no different. Our returning guest to our broadcast, Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, is Joseph Peretta. I want to thank you again for joining us as we continue our conversation about language. Uh, I find it fascinating, and I'm glad that you've uh, agreed to join us again here on the program. Oh, great to be with you again, Rich. And, and I did not take my red pen out once that entire time you were talking. <laughs> You're being of kind. Course, I appreciate of, of, course, of course, I don't use red pens, but that's beside the point. <laughs> <laughs> well, and here's the funny thing. Every word that I spoke, I misspelled. But how would you know that? How would you know I that couldn't. I misspelled those words? <laughs> we don't have the closed captioning on you good yeah. that's right exactly <laughs> well today we're going to talk about uh the non-traditional college student and the the education for that non-traditional college student especially in light of covid and we're also going to talk about the aspect of uh online teaching but that th those actually go hand in hand but here's the funny thing that a lot of people are are just kind of flipping out about they seem to uh, think that this whole aspect of online education, that there's a problem with it. And I understand from a socialization standpoint, yes. But from an educational standpoint, uh, a couple of decades ago, they poo-pooed it if you got a certificate. But today, that's not the case, is it? No, not at all. And I think uh, time is changing to the respect that the Internet is such a major part of our life now that it's almost expected that people would be able to learn online. Um, now that we've incorporated the computer, it's become such a part of our life. It seems natural now, whereas a decade or two ago, we, would, we just couldn't wrap our brains around that possibility. 
So now that we're able to do that, that means that we need to be able to operate the computer in such a way as to move about. Uh, if we're using Zoom, for example, this program is now available on YouTube uh, on my channel, Richard Dugan, where you can uh, watch the program, see our guests. And sometimes we'll we'll throw up a, a screenshot of whatever it is we're talking about or I'll hold up the book. I'm still learning about all of that, too, because I try to set myself in the center of the uh, of the camera there. So I'm in the center of the screen. And the other day I was doing an interview and I held the book up, put it right in front of my face. <laughs> yeah, well, I, that's natural. Sure, sure. But uh, now I'm thinking, OK, so maybe I should set my image, my head to the left or to the right and then put my book, put the book up if they have a book up to that Great. side. But we've also gone to websites and I will do a screen share and it works out really well. Um, in terms of that, what are what do you think are some of the downsides of aside from the socialization issue? What are some of the downsides of online education? Can, are there many and what might they be? Yeah, socialization definitely is number one. This is the first full semester in 23 years of teaching that I've taught exclusively online. So I'm learning it just as much as the students are as far as you know, how to navigate teaching and learning online. I think the biggest thing for me as an instructor is not being able to read facial features and body language. If I'm teaching a skills-based course, like a writing 101 course, I can frequently see if a student is getting it or not getting it by reading the body language. It's not as easy, if at all possible, to do uh, online, especially if they don't have a camera and all they're doing is either watching me or listening to me. So that's that, that's probably the biggest drawback because if students are reluctant to ask questions online, I really don't know if they're getting it until they're producing work. Yeah. And, and you can't uh, see that I'm... Yeah, you can't see that I'm texting right now or sending emails or I'm just not focusing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that on top of, you know, re reading their reactions or lack thereof, that, that that's a challenge. That's a big thing. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, short of calling people out and you don't want to embarrass them or say, yeah, so and so, what do you think about this? Or, you know, what, you know, do you have a question about that? That that that's a challenge. I, I just love the 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 uh, being in the room with them you know physically there's there's no, no substitute for that but you know thank god we have this option because nowadays with so many schools either closed for in-person learning or reducing the number of students that they're having on campus that would be a major blow to our educational system yeah and yet formal let's just say four year college education isn't necessarily for everyone how does how does someone yeah. and and i'm not talking about the parents trying to figure out whether the kids should go to college how does yeah. the kid decide how does the let's say high school student senior or maybe they're they're taking a year off whatever how do they make that determination that you know maybe there's a different direction that I could go that not only would save me money as far as loans, save my parents money as far as loans for a four year university education, but that yeah. would get me what I want uh, in four or five years. I mean, you know, again, that non-traditional education. Well, I mean, I think for many students it's even sooner than their senior year of high school that they know they don't want to go to college mm -hmm. so time is on their side when it comes to that the problem is that they're either forced by a parent or whomever to go to school and they really don't want to or they're led to believe by society that the only way to succeed is with a college degree so they're kind of up against the wall even because if college isn't for them, they feel they have to. And then there's a whole other bunch of issues that go along with that. Once they get in, they get yeah. in, they don't do well. And then, you know, that's, you know, problem you know, at home and all these other areas. So, I mean, the best thing I tell students is that you got to want to be in college first and foremost, mm -hmm. because it's a huge investment in so many ways. 
And secondly, if you know you don't want to be in college, by all means, don't go to college Mm -hmm. because, you know, success is a success should not be measured by somebody else's standard. It's got to be measured by our own individual standard. Do you find that with your students, and I don't know how many of the parents that you communicate with uh, in terms of students, because I know college is a far cry from from high school. Yeah. um, Do you find that the attitude of the parents of students is more now let's let the kid decide what he he or she wants to do the young adult if you will in in terms of choosing majors or or being in college or are you still seeing that stereotypical you're going to college because none of us have ever been to college and you're going to be the first or whatever the argument is Fortunately, I'm protected by the federal government by a law that says I don't have to talk. I don't have to talk to the parents unless, you know, the parent absolutely says, do you have to talk to me? And the student signs off on it. But that rarely ever happens. So the best way for me to really answer that question is once I know the student for a while and I either overhear conversations or read some of the things they've written, then I know the amount of influence a parent's may have on the on the kid mm-hmm. um and it's not so much where the parents are even saying you know none of us have gone to college you've got to go it's more of you know you come from a long line of college graduates you need to keep that trend going uh, or culturally you know students of certain cultures you know like when my parents expect me to be a doctor or my parents expect me to be a lawyer so there's this yeah, this expectation foisted on them at a very young age and it's very stressful for them. And I can't tell you, I've had several of them who have gone down the road and just have hated it, but they've just felt they've got to do it for their parents. Yeah. And uh, then the parents are uh, stereotypically living vicariously through their yes. children because it was something they wanted to do, but they couldn't. Right. Or they right. didn't. Uh, for whatever yeah. the reasons are, you know, their family didn't have the money or they didn't have the grades, whatever the, whatever the, uh, the case might yeah. be. Let's start talking about this aspect of learning the language. Now, granted, when we're born, uh, <clears throat> it has been said to parents and family and friends and so forth that you need to talk around your infants and your toddlers so that they can learn the language, uh, which to me is fascinating that. Uh, a child, an infant and a toddler actually learns. Cause I think about learning a foreign language now and I'm thinking, Oh my God, that is just going to be, I mean, we tried learning Gaelic uh, uh, after getting, after going to Ireland a couple of times and mm-hmm. we learned a few, a few uh, phrases and so forth. What about learning the language? Not so much from family and friends and parents as a to- infant and toddler growing up, but as far as learning the spoken word as well as the written word, because they are two different things, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. yes. in a manner that allows you to communicate effectively with people within the society. Yeah, and as far as the teaching of the language is concerned, let me address it from that uh, from that okay. standpoint. Uh, for me, I think it is, I hate using the word easier, but I'll use that now with air quotation marks around it. <laughs> I feel it's easier to teach the, uh, the written word than it is the spoken word. And here's why. When you teach the written word, you are providing a structure that anybody, students or what have you, um, are able to incorporate into their learning, a writing process, which I call it, a step-by-step approach to getting their thoughts on paper in a syntactically correct way. Whereas when you're teaching the spoken word, you can teach the presentation of it, like in public speaking or oral communication, but the there, there's it's more difficult to teach a structure in a in an oral sense. Mm-hmm. Part of the difficulty is that we hear the language abused so many ways when it's spoken yeah. uh, over the course of a day that 
it becomes ingrained in us. So much like that little child who learns the language upon hearing it, we're no different. We hear slang or we hear um, misused sentences in the course of a day. And whether we realize it or not, we will frequently replicate that in our own speaking. Yeah. So when you're teaching the spoken word, it's much more difficult to create a structure because first thing you have to do is undo the wrongs yeah. and then, you know, you know, establish the right thereafter. So, yeah, the spoken the spoken word is definitely more difficult to teach. It's a shame you can't just hit uh, uh, the F key and reformat that section of the brain and start over, yeah. you know, um, yeah. because uh, it, it's, it's very interesting. And I think about matter of fact, the one word that came to my mind when you said that uh, spoke about that was the word, which isn't a word, irregardless. There is no such I, word as irregardless. Yeah. But you hear it over and over again. The only form of that word is regardless. Yes. That's it. Well, one of my one of my pet peeves over the last few years with students of, with writing, and I don't know where this began. I just wish it never did. They'll say, this is based off of instead uh, of based on. Oh, yeah. And I'll say to them, any any of you baseball or softball fans? A few of them will raise their hands. Okay. You've got the base runner. Okay when they reach, where are they? And they'll say on base. I say, yes, on base, not off base. Yeah. You know, so just as a way to try to draw a visual for them, there you go. That they can hopefully remember yeah. and, and, and apply in their own writing. It works for some, it doesn't for others, but sure. yeah, the, the mangling of certain words or certain phrases and, as I said, I don't know where some of them begin. I just wish they would end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I like to re-pronounce words uh, as to get across a point. And that's a whole different story from making up words that really don't exist. Now, I thought when I talk about how we want to move from a, a, a lifestyle and a, a, a social structure of survival to thrival, I thought I had invented a new word. And then I looked it up and I realized... Okay, I, I, I'm, I'm willing to relinquish credit for that word. <laughs> I'm just glad it's there. It's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, so those are the kinds of things. And then, of course, repronouncing. Now, uh, if you take uh, the British pronunciations of certain words like laboratory or lavatory, laboratory mm -hmm. is one. Privacy right. is another. Privacy, privacy. They're the same words but another one that I like to repronounce is people believe in coincidences. There are no coincidences. There are, however, coincidences. Right. Now, it's still spelled the same. It's just yes. I'm putting the emphasis on, as they love to say, on a different syllable. Syllable. Yes. Syllable. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's that there are things that coincide. Yes. There are no accidents is what I'm trying to say with that. There mm -hmm. are no accidents. Mm -hmm. There's a reason whether you know what it is or not, there is a reason. So that is one thing. Okay. And a lot of people will, for example, in, in musical lyrics, they will take liberties with the pronunciation of certain words, still using the word, just pronouncing it a little differently to match the phraseology that they're singing about. Mm -hmm. uh, and people still get the meaning. That's another aspect, too, by the way. Um, that's poetry. Yes. Musical lyrics, to me, is just poetry put to music. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's absolutely. a beautiful thing. That's yeah. a different kind of written language as well. Uh, not just the lyrics, but poetry specifically uh, mm -hmm. that is incorporated into many aspects of our lives. Do you... And and then there's the other aspect, the written language of newspaper writing, writing newspaper stories is right. written differently than the way we speak. Yeah. Do you have any information as to where some of these styles came from? And I'm thinking specifically of the newspaper style, uh, where that came from, or did it just, did it just evolve uh, to what it is today? Because when I worked for a radio reading service where they read the newspaper, the readers would have to sometimes on the fly live, they would have to edit the story 
because at the beginning of the paragraph, it would say, Bill Johnson said, blah, 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 he said. Mm. And it's like, you don't want to say the second he said. Yes. Or, yeah. you know, Bill Johnson is quoted as saying blah, 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 and dropping the he said at the end. Uh, and they would have to do this sometimes on the fly. Any information mm. from your standpoint on that? I don't know where it began. The one thing I find interesting, the journalistic approach or style that is most familiar to most of us is the who, what, when, where, why, how approach, mm -hmm. meaning the most important questions are answered usually within the first three paragraphs of the news story. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you could basically, you could, the understanding was, with, let's say with the New York Times, once you read the first three paragraphs, you pretty much know everything you need to know about that particular story because the journalist has been taught this style of yeah. addressing those questions early on. Mm -hmm. So with the, the belief that the reader does not have that much time to read, so you give them what they need up front. What is interesting is I've read some old time sports stories, journalism stories from newspapers, and the way that people like Ring Lardner and Red Smith and other old time sports journalists wrote, it's almost like they were <clears throat> writing short stories in in the newspapers because they use this these long flowing very descriptive words and drawing these elaborate word pictures that i was very surprised the first time i read some of those because they were it was a totally different approach from what i learned when i took journalism classes and what we see in the newspapers today mm -hmm. so when it changed how it changed yeah why it changed i don't know for sure you know when all these things happened but it's very interesting to see that yeah as we talked about previously how writing has either changed evolved devolved however you want to look at mm -hmm. it in, in, in any of its forms whether it be journalism or essay writing or what have you what i also find interesting is uh the culture we'll call them the cultural mores and how, especially here in the 21st century, they want to change the language within, uh, I'll call them literary masterpieces. For example, the stories of uh, uh, the, the Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. And they want to take out the N-word. Yeah. And it's like, but, but that's the way they spoke in the times in which mark twain wrote these yeah. stories yeah so now you are changing the story and from my perspective it's no longer a story by mark twain yeah and what the one thing i tell my students when i teach literature classes is as much as possible put yourself back in the shoes of either the author or the people who lived at the time that he or she was writing. Because you're going to see descriptions, you're going to see certain words that you're either not familiar with or you may be offended by, by you know, 21st century standards. And it's, a, it's fine to be offended. However, as you just said, think, you know, th th this was common parlance at that time, like it or not. Yeah. So we, we, we have to kind of put our own prejudices or our own you know, displeasures behind us, or at least off to the side, while we're reading that and keeping in mind the time frame uh, that these things were written. Yeah, and I, I would actually then superimpose that philosophy or logic, shall we say, onto what's going on in this country in particular, but it actually is going on around the world, uh, about taking down symbols that represent certain parts of our history. Now, I don't have a dog in this fight, but you can't change history by removing the symbols. It's right. still got its good, bad, and ugly. Yeah. And by removing the symbol, you have done nothing but removed a symbol. Yeah, I mean, um, we don't, again, we don't have to like what we see. We don't like have to like the history, but mm -hmm. we can't deny it as right. much as we may try to. We can't deny it. And I'm not, I don't have a dog <laughs> dog in this race either. It's just, it, 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 you know, I hate to say it is what it is, but yeah. we have to, we have to, if, if, if we want to change, if we want to grow from something, we need to know what it is that we're growing from and acknowledge that it exists. 
because if we don't, then there's a greater chance that we're going to repeat that thing that we that it is that we're trying to, you know, yeah. ignore. You know, we go down these these pathways to come back to what we wanted to talk about. What first of all, what do you consider as an educator non-traditional education? Non-traditional education. I mean. I, I, I guess traditional education would be anything that's classroom oriented. Anything that's not classroom oriented could be considered non-traditional education. Mm-hmm. Um, when I talk about non-traditional students in particular, I mean those students who are, let's say, beyond what would be considered college age, which is usually the 18 to 22 year old time frame. So anybody who's older than that would be considered non-traditional students. But I, I tend to not even like the idea or the phrase of non-traditional education because it either sounds as though then something is informal or shouldn't be done. So my feeling is if anybody can learn a skill and apply it and make themselves valuable either to themselves or to others, then it's, it's important. So you know, whether it's in the classroom or elsewhere, you know, go for it. So if they want to, if people want to look at non-traditional as being something that is outside of what we think of, you know, formal schooling, then that's fine. But yeah, however you can get it, go get it. And I find it interesting, the criticism given to non-traditional education by those who believe that traditional or formal education, classroom, as you say, classroom education, is the most important. It's what everybody should have, everybody needs. I found it interesting as I grew up in grade school, in public grade school, public high school, and then junior mm-hmm. college. As I was going through each of the grades, I would learn about the differences between, first of all, between boys and girls and their ability, their capacity to learn. Mm-hmm. And that girls had a greater capacity as they were growing up to learn in a formal educational system, classroom setting, than boys. Because boys were pumped full of energy and they wanted them, they couldn't sit still, they were moving around and this and that and the other thing. And then as I got out of high school, and actually shortly before I got out of high school, I started hearing the stories about how they wanted to normalize all the kids by putting them on Ritalin and other chemicals. And I thought, well, wait a minute, but you just told me that boys and girls learn differently they absorb education in different ways, but now you want to normalize them? That doesn't make any sense. It's ironic, too, because yeah. what is it that you're trying to normalize? What's natural is that we're different. Yeah. So if you're trying to, if you're tr- you're trying to group everybody together, you're destroying some people by Ex- doing that. Exactly. Then there's the, other, uh, the, the next element, and that is that uh, Joe uh, Peretta and Richard Dugan, both males— learn differently from each other joe might love the classroom setting richard might love to be out under an oak tree with the class learning about nature and this and that and the other thing and he absorbs they both are just absorbing everything they can get in their respective environments yeah but richard's in the wrong place according to society he needs to be in the classroom sitting down being still listening to the instructor I will tell you that there was one class in high school that I took. Uh, it was a requirement, but nonetheless, it was algebra. Mm. I loved it. Oh, it was great because of, and partly because of the variables, but I was understanding the whole aspect of variables. And I was actually ahead. I was jumping ahead one chapter after another ahead of the rest of the class. And when my instructor, I still remember her name, Mrs. Summers, she saw that. She says, I'll tell you what. As long as you keep bringing in the homework, you don't have to come to class. Mm. Big mistake. (laughs) (laughs) I started falling behind and I ended up having to go back to class. And and that was okay. It was a lesson learned that I needed the formal setting in order to continue to move forward. Um, And again, every, every individual learns differently. Do you feel as an educator that we need some kind of aptitude test. And I know this is a difficult situation that we're talking about here in terms of creating in a, in a traditional school setting, 
But it just seems to me we need an aptitude test to determine how each student learns and maybe put the similar learning types, type A, B, C, D, into classroom A, B, C, D, respectively. Do you think that's a good idea or do you think that it's better that we have a, a mixture in each of the classrooms and but then, of course, the teacher has to, you know, give individual and different tutelage to each of the students based upon their aptitude for learning. What are your thoughts yeah. on that? My I, well, questions like that, I always have two answers. I have the theoretical answer and I have the practical answer. Mm -hmm. Theoretically, that sounds awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Practically, I just don't think it's going to happen. Okay. Um, and I can only I can only really talk about this from what it is I teach and from you know my experience in the classroom as as an instructor. When I teach skills based courses, I make it so that at whatever level a student comes into my writing class, let's say they have the ability and ultimately the potential to improve upon where they are at this given moment at the beginning uh, because of, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the structure that I provide and the process that they can follow. So whether somebody excels at free writing and syntax or somebody else excels at grammar and something and something else, the way I present the class is inclusive to the extent that they're all going to raise their ability by the time the class ends. Mm -hmm. So separating students out based upon strengths in a class like mine wouldn't work because my approach is such that, you know, whatever the strengths or weaknesses happen to be coming in, they will either be improved upon or diminished given, you know, whatever it happens to be mm -hmm. by the time uh, they're over. My concern with sort of giving the aptitude test is similar to what I experienced when I was growing up. They had, I don't know if you experienced this when you went to public school, but our school system had this tracking system where you had like track one, track two, track three, and track four. Mm -hmm. Track one was the best students. And then with each, each other track, it was, you know, less able students, let's say. So by the time you got down to track four, there was such a stigma attached to being in track four. It's like you see the kid walking down the hallway and you're like backing away from them like, they're, like they have the plague or something. Mm -hmm. And I think that aptitude tests or any type of tests like that, we run the risk of separating out in that kind of tracking system. While it might have all the best intentions, I think socially and psychologically, it has an effect upon students that can be avoided. Yeah, it's there is no question. It's a it's a very tricky situation to have to deal with, and yet I know that it is something that we we have to discuss. We have to figure out ways of educating our youth. Um, what about uh, adult education in that regard? Again, I know you're you're doing uh, it is college level, correct? Right. Yes. Uh, so you're dealing with not just young adults in their late teens and 20s, but you have older students. You've had older students as well uh, who Pretty are cool. doing continuing education, just wanting to maybe sharpen, sharpen that blade, so to speak, of that particular subject a little bit more. Right. Um, do you find that the, the older students, and again, we'd, I would say, what, uh, 30 plus, um, they are... If they didn't want to be there, and this was my attitude with junior college, I wanted to be there. Not so much mm -hmm. grade school and high school, but once it was given me the option to go to school, to get an education and further myself, yeah. I wanted to go. And uh, so do you find that that they are more malleable than a lot of the younger college age, again, teen to mid-20s uh, age students, to to the learning, to the education that's being provided? Yeah, in fact, the non-traditional student that you're referring to is my favorite group of students, in part for the reason that you just mentioned. There is that malleability once you make them believe or get them to understand and believe that they can do it. Mm -hmm. The biggest issue, again, and I'm teaching writing, so I'm going to come from, from my experience. So many of them have been out of a classroom in any setting for so long that they come back and they're petrified. 
And the first thing I need to do, yeah, I think they get a little bit, they're intimidated coming in and they know that they have to write and they have to learn the structure and I give them the course syllabus. Now they're really intimidated. (laughs) But then once we get through, once we get through that, I'm like, okay, now let's get to work. And they see that this structure that I'm providing them is working for them as long as they work it. And that's the key. I find that the older, the non-traditional students are not only more malleable, they're more willing to take the instruction and use it than the younger or more traditional age college students are. I've seen, I've had so many success stories, and this isn't so much me as much as it is those students. Those non-traditional students, once they get it, they get it and they run with it. And the transformation from the beginning of the semester to the latter part of the semester, it's, it's night and day. What are some of the techniques that you use to build that level of confidence in the non-traditional student? Constant work. There's no substitute for just doing it. I mean, they th- these students are in the workforce. They've been in the workforce for many years, so they know what it is to just do things and do things and work at it and get it in whatever field they happen to be in. I kind of take the same approach when I'm teaching writing with them. I'm like, guys, I'm giving you this format, the structure to use. I'm here to work with you. I expect you to make mistakes. And I think that's one of the biggest things that any student needs to do and accept is they need to make mistakes in order to learn and to grow from them. So I say to them, if I make a lot of marks on some of your early work, don't be scared by that. Consider it a blessing because that's how you're going to learn and you're going to grow. So we just continue to work at it until little by little, you know, I tell them, yeah, practice makes improvement. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. the more they do it, the better they're going to get at it. So I try to make this as practical as I can. You know, it's not theoretical. It's not, you know, I don't go into the classroom with with with, with a pipe and patches on my on my elbows or anything like this. <laughs> I roll up I roll up my sleeves and say, let's do this. Have you ever considered removing from the vocabulary the words success and failure, replacing both of them? with the word learning and all of its associated uh, words. I have not, but one thing I have done with that word failure, and I've told several of them to write this down, is that failure is a result, not a person. Yeah. And I say that because, and then when I say failure, I tell them I'm put that in the air quotes again. I'm just saying this is the result that you produce at this particular point in your education, Mm -hmm. because this is what you know at this particular point. This is what you're capable of producing at this point. Mm -hmm. And again, as we continue to improve, we, you know, we move away from and we build upon that earlier assignment until, you know, we get up to where we need to be. But that's, that's interesting. You're replacing success and failure with learning because that's really what it is. I mean, yeah. Yeah. The, the results are, quote-unquote success or quote-unquote failure the process is the learning yeah and and yet at the same time uh you've got the the process of um uh edison and the light bulb then we've we've Mm -hmm. all heard the the example many times Mm -hmm. uh and he didn't accept the word failure when people looked at the 990 different examples over on his workbench that right. the light bulb didn't work. He says, I just found 990 ways that it didn't work. That's all. Right. And then I found one that did. And of course, yeah. now we've moved on from incandescent to LED. And that gentleman also was probably in the same same uh, same boat, that he right. was working and working and working, trying to perfect this new low-energy usage illumination device. How do, how would mm. you like to be referring to your light bulb instead of as a light bulb as an illumination device? <laughs> <laughs> because they do measure the light emitted as lumens. Lumens, yeah. 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 Um, but it's the same thing with each one of us. I uh, I was trying to uh, load something into my truck, and um, it fell back, and the cap popped off, and stuff leaked all over the place, and I recapped it, and I said, okay, i got to try something new, but mm-hmm. I'm going to have to wait until later because... Uh, you know, I, I need to rethink this and so on and so forth. Right. So I finally found a way and I finally got the load in the truck and it was amazing. And, and it's like, okay, that's what I should have done in the first place. But I figured I could probably lift it. And obviously I cannot bench press 300 pounds. It's just not in my, 
in my DNA. Yeah, yeah. What about, and shifting gears here, this aspect of learning in the COVID or coronavirus era? Um, do you take into consideration the levels of anxiety and stress sense awareness of stress again i know you can't you can't read the body language you're probably right. not even able to see the students faces on the screen because you don't have it set up in that fashion uh because it, it that could be distracting at the same time i'm sure that there must be some interaction vocally that where you're able to pick up or maybe the work that they submit to you via email, you're able to pick up on this person is, uh, you know, needs a little extra something. What about the, the, the educational system in the, the coronavirus era? Yeah, I, um, I want to go back to last semester at a, a different school where I was teaching. I was teaching at a community college last semester and had taught there for several years prior to uh, moving to this new location. And many of the students where I taught were, were struggling economically. And as a result of that, they did not have things at home like a computer and, and uh, other, other things that many of us take for granted. So there was the stress once colleges shut down back in the spring, there was the stress that several students had uh, of not having the technology necessary at home or the fact that they are working and some of them were losing their jobs because of COVID or they were getting more responsibility because they would have to take care of parents and, uh, and just a, a, lot, a lot of things that we could not have foreseen <laughs> just several weeks before everything shut down. So I from experience, I've learned how to take those things into consideration. And it's a challenge for everybody involved, whether it be the students themselves, those of us who are instructors, administrators. And the biggest challenge is then teaching a class, instead of teaching them as a class, teaching them as individuals in a class setting. And by that, I mean, person A may be less affected by COVID than person B is, and person C is the most affected at all, of all. So mm. you, you really just had to take, take it on a case-by-case -case basis. And it, it is a significant challenge, um, but you know, it's just you know what we've been thrust into. I, it's been said that it isn't the changes that we have the problem with. It's adapting to them. Oh, yeah. And because we can't go back. There is no going back. As R.E.M. said, uh, the, uh, the end of the, it's the end of the world as we know it. Mm -hmm. This is a new world. Whether you like it or not, this is it. Uh, yep. And so now we need to find ways to embrace it, uh, accept it, adapt to it, um, and not fight it. And I know a lot of people are fighting and they're wasting a lot of energy they could be using on so many other things. I know that there are people out there in the entrepreneurial world that have just gone nuts in terms of their creativity, in terms of their support of their fellow human beings. Uh, not only in this country, but around the world. I, it's just incredible. It's just incredible. What about the connection between students in this COVA era, uh, Corona era um, uh, educational process? Are you seeing that, is there still that kind of collaboration? Because I know that if you were sitting in a classroom, they would, wouldn't they, haven't they sort of maybe worked together a little bit outside class to support and help one another? Oh, sure. I mean, if we were in a traditional classroom setting in you know, previous times, pre-COVID, if you will, yeah, um, they would work, be working together in the classroom, outside the classroom. They may actually even have other classes together in addition to mine. I think the one thing that is a benefit to some of the students, and now I'm talking more about the four-year college students versus the community college students, mm -hmm. is that the four-year students are more in tuned with technology. They've been, they were born into a computer age, so a lot of them knew how to use a computer from, let's say, three years old. So, you know, for them, this is kind of second nature. So, communicating 
via the computer is just you know, it's 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 common whether it's you know through a website like Facebook or yeah. through texting or email or whatever. So for them, learning in the COVID era is less of a struggle or less of a challenge than it might be for a non-traditional student or in some cases, like some of the community college students who I dealt with last semester. So I don't think it has as big an effect on, on some of those students. What is the most challenging for you as the instructor? What's the most challenging aspect of teaching in the COVID era? And you may have addressed it already, but maybe elaborate from that perspective. The most challenging aspect of teaching the English language to the students? Uh, keeping them engaged. You know, and I'm in the classroom with them, obviously, like I said earlier, whether it be a writing class or a literature class, I can you know, read their language, read their facial expressions, call on them. They're more apt to ask questions in person, actually, than they are online. So making sure that they're getting it, keeping them engaged, making sure that what I'm saying to them is making sense. Um, online, somebody like me, you're talking about somebody who's been an instructor for 23 years, and this is the first semester in all that time I've taught exclusively online. So, yeah, I, I was one of those one of those people back in August who was questioning whether or not I was going to be able to succeed to the level that I'm used to succeeding as an instructor. So, um, the biggest thing is keeping them engaged. And by now, at this point of the semester, where we're a couple of months in, um, I think I've gotten through to them the necessity for them to stay focused because I'm going to be limited as to what I can do to make sure that they're, you know, staying involved. You know, the best I can do is when they when they submit work, if it's not up to par, I'm like, well, something is missing here in the translation or in the communication. So, yeah, if I if I can keep them reeled in and involved, then then that's uh, a big, a big success for me as part of my learning uh, to use that word that you've mentioned before. Yeah. Who bolsters you? Who supports you? Who encourages you in those times like back in August when you wonder uh, how, how, how am I going to do this? And, and am I going to be able to succeed and survive and, and accomplish the things that I want to accomplish in my life? My wife. <laughs> <laughs> Short and simple. And that's a good answer. Yeah. I mean, um, I got to tell you over the court, over the years, we've, we've known each other now coming up on 20 years. We've been married 16 years. She's seen me be able to do things or believe I could do things that I couldn't think that I could do. And this is just maybe the latest example of it because I've never been a real tech person. So just the idea of having to teach online and learning Zoom on the fly like I have, I just didn't think it was possible. And then, yeah, what if this happens or what if that happens? And I tend not to be a negative person, but there was just so much new in such a short period of time that I'm thinking, you know, how am I going to be able to offer the quality of education that I'm used to doing by having not being in the classroom with them? And she basically said, you'll do it. You'll adapt to this just like you've adapted to everything else. And, yeah, yeah. And she's that, upstairs. I don't want to. She's upstairs. So I don't want to say it's too loud. Well, I have to say that I think that uh, our wives and sweethearts do not get enough credit for where we are, and I certainly yeah. would acknowledge my wife's input and support in everything that I do, but I also would say, too, that I am where I am today, here talking with you, Joe Peretta, English teacher, uh, I am indebted to thousands of people over the last 40-plus mm -hmm. years, including my yeah. parents, my siblings, yeah. uh, my neighbors, uh, I have received uh, incredible uh, uh, comments. A matter of fact, from a neighbor who lived next door to us, uh, he was uh, the oldest of nine kids. Mm. And I reconnected with one of his brothers who uh, connected with him saying, hey, you know, I was in touch with Richard. Remember our old neighbor back in, uh, you know, in Phoenix, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. He says, yeah, I, I remember him. And and he forward uh, the brother forwarded on to me the text that his brother sent to him, the elder brother, 
uh, and I was grateful for it because he says, I, you know, I have to say that Richard was a great lesson in uh, disabilities because he was out there doing everything that we were doing in spite of the fact that he couldn't see well. And mm. that really showed me a different side to the disability. And I'm just one person with one disability. And he's impressed right. by the fact that he showed that dis- people with disabilities can still do stuff that everybody else can do. And yeah. I was just touched and, and, by and, that. And, and, yeah, I mean, and most my, as I was saying, my most immediate influence has been my wife. But yeah, I don't think any of us gets to where we are yeah. without many... Um, mentors or you know motivators inspirations over the course of our lives most definitely yeah and it's uh it is uh, one of those uh, questions that i used to ask at the end of the program you know who inspires you and of course obviously in your case and even in mine it's it's our respective uh, spouses mm-hmm. um and it's it's it is extraordinary what we you and i have both been through in our respective lives i mean i don't know your individual story to that degree to say okay our comparisons are quite similar you you could have lived my life and i could have lived yours and it would have been the same no but we um we're humble enough to acknowledge that we didn't do it on our own but by the same token we also are uh we are also acknowledging of our fortitude our initiative to continue to move forward when things did get difficult or challenging uh, or stressful and it's like okay i just got to hang on a little longer and it's it's going to change because everything changes and when the change comes i'll be ready for it whatever it is because at least it'll be something different and that's kind of the way that i've i've pursued life and i think that you're you're kind of the same way well, I mean, if, if you're a believer, I mean, in Corinthians, it says God does not give us more than we can handle. And some people believe that some people don't. And yeah. if you're a believer, then that's uh, something that we have as a foundation and uh, worth, well, wor- worth, worth thinking about. Yeah. Well, there's also that other, <laughs> that other saying that says that which doesn't kill you strengthens yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, either way, we'll, we'll, take, right. uh, we'll take the scripture, we'll take the wise saying either way and just keep moving forward. And, you know, I honestly believe that, uh, that we're going to do this. And as I said, uh, I've said this on many programs lately, that I believe that there are opportunities we don't even know exist yet that we're going to face and open up those doors and we're going to see things we never thought we would see incredible stuff. And I, that just thrills me. Well, you know, Richard, there's everything old is new again. When you think about it, if we could go back any number of years and think about any innovations or anything that was created or anything that mankind has done that just maybe a decade before we would have thought was impossible. So this is just another version of that. Whatever this new thing will be down the line, it's just you know, the latest of the newest thing that we just thought, you know, it impossible to see happen. Yeah. You know, and uh, I'm sure that in 1918, they felt the same way, that this was one of those impossible things could never happen, you know. Um, And quite honestly, if there were a meteor or an asteroid that was headed point blank towards the Earth right in the center and it was an extinction event that we didn't know about, we would still go about our everyday lives doing the things that we're doing and doing until the very end that we didn't know was coming. Sure. And there was a great movie. I'll just share this real quick with you that I saw the ending surprised me. And it was, and it was Stephen with Steve Carell. And it was, um, I think it was something along the lines of how to find a friend uh, at the end of the world or something of that nature. And it was fascinating how they knew the end was coming. And he went to visit his father, who he was estranged from. His father thought he was there to try to patch things up and make everything right again. He says, Dad, I don't even want to go there. Okay? Mm. I'm here now with you. You are my father. And all I want to do is spend this time with you and whoever else was with him. Uh, That's all I want to do. Right. And pushed all of that other stuff aside. Well, whether there is or isn't 
just seems to me we should be doing that, pushing all of that other stuff aside and sitting down and breaking bread, so to speak. It usually takes some sort of either tragedy or some major challenge to humanity for us to say something like, you know, this really puts things into perspective. But sadly, the perspective doesn't say sharp for very long (laughs) how we used to be. Exactly. Well, I want to thank you once again for sharing this time with me and our listeners here on this program. You and I met through LinkedIn. Yes. Um, and uh, it's it's been a wonderful little relationship that we've started remotely, and uh, I'm glad that we did. Uh, I've always been fascinated by the people I have met on LinkedIn, but I've even been more fascinated as well by the the many thousands of people I have met through the programmers that I produce programs for who bring guests on of incredible caliber. I feel as though I have a, a PhD in um, eclectic studies. Mm-hmm. I mean, thousands of different subjects that probably could be codified down into maybe 15 or 20 categories, but nonetheless, it's it. And, and so I even compliment the hosts on a regular basis for bringing these people to this program uh, and, and uh, elucidating on the subject matter that they are, you know, so, uh, so knowledgeable and even expert in. And I know that you're still learning about the language, but you, sure. you, you have a certain level of expertise and now you're sharing that with people and you've been sharing that for you. Now you said 23 years you've been teaching. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And has it been primarily the English language? Yeah. Writing yeah. and literature through on, at the college level for about 23 years. Yeah. I still get a kick out of going to English class for the first time in college and hearing five essays were needed to be written during the semester. And it freaked me out. And then I learned the format, <laughs> the structure, the protocol. And as I learned that protocol and I started writing my essays, it was actually a lot of fun. It was, it was the equivalent of uh, the fun I used to have as a younger person building plastic models, spacecraft and airplanes and boats, and the list goes on. And it's just that this is a literary model. And right. if I put it together the way I've been instructed and I've been given the instructions, just like with the mo- plastic model, mm-hmm. it should work. And I think that I did pretty well. So uh, I was I was thrilled about that experience. And uh, there's a part of me that just feels like, boy, I would love to go back one again to go back to school, maybe take a course here or there. And uh, maybe that'll open up, too. And uh, and we'll see what happens. But again, I really programs like yours, Richard, are the ideal example of the non-traditional education that you were talking about before, because not only you are learning from the guests that you have, but obviously your listeners are learning as well. So you've got you've got an on the air uh, classroom, if you will. <laughs> I'll get a chalkboard behind me next time. Yeah, <laughs> and and I'll get a physics equation back there and say, "Can you solve that equation back there, folks? If you right. can, <laughs> you win a brand new cut." Co- no. Uh, anyway, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. I want to remind our listeners: uh, this program is on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. on this fine station, and 1 a.m. Uh, on Monday mornings, as well as the podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM. Blueberry, as well as richarddugan.com, the homepage, as well as the radio shows page. You can also go to the missions page of richarddugan.com, where you'll see a couple of links at the bottom of the description of what we're all about, where if you like what we're doing and you'd like to support us financially, we would greatly appreciate that. Uh, So they're there for our security as well as yours. And uh, we thank you for uh, supporting us in that way financially. We also hope that you will uh, check out... uh, um, the work of uh, uh, Joe Peretta on LinkedIn. Uh, he has uh, information there, I'm sure, as well, and uh, give you referral information on where you can uh, continue your language education. Uh, and again, Joe, I want to uh, thank you for so much for being with us. And I probably asked you these questions at the end of the last program we did, but I always like to ask them again, only because the answers could be different today. Because since we last talked, You've been living and breathing and growing and learning and experiencing. And, uh, you know, so first question is, who is Joe Peretta? Joe Peretta is a motivator. He is an instructor and he's somebody who wants to help people 
improve their lives one day at a time. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now? Help people to develop a can-do attitude when previously they thought that they couldn't. And finally, what is your life's purpose? My life's purpose is to help people succeed. Joe Peretta, again, thank you so much for being with us. And my thanks to your wife as well for her <laughs> supporting you in your endeavors and giving us this, this much time here on the program. Thanks, Richard. We'll talk again soon. Absolutely. I'm Richard Dugan. You've been listening to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to lol.